Well, we're diving back into our series that we started last week called He is Greater, looking briefly at the, the book of Hebrews. And while it's not an exhaustive study, we're going to try to pull out some of the, the key points about who Jesus is and what faith looks like. And this is that book that really kind of brings that in, into, into view. So last week we talked about Jesus is greater because he is God, because he has the position as the Son of God, and because he has the power. Uh, you can follow along. Our notes will be up on the screen. Uh, but if you have your smartphone, you can pull up Version Live and uh, type in Christian Chapel or type in your zip code and follow along on, on those notes as well. So yesterday I got the privilege of golfing in the CCA golf tournament. It was pretty awesome. You don't have to clap. I'm just taking a drink. Um, but we're so thankful for the, the leadership uh, of our school that put that together. And so I got to, to show off my golf um, I'm not even sure what to call it. Skill would be the wrong word. I got to pull out my golf clubs yesterday. And uh, we had a great time, beautiful weather. But I'm reminded when I play golf, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. I'm, I'm a recovering perfectionist in general. How many perfectionists do we have out there? Okay, a few, few out there, perfectionists. You know, you need a 12-step program. But you'd never make it through because you'd get stuck on one step that you just couldn't get perfect. It's okay. So golf is one of those games that you can actually be perfect at. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but, you know, like, unlike sports and, uh, like football and, and baseball that you can't really be perfect, so to speak, golf, it's really easy to see if you're perfect. All you've got to do is shoot a hole in one. That's it. I rarely shoot hole in ones. Okay, I've never shot a hole in one, but uh, mini golf counts, right? I just need one person to say yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so it counts. But golf, it's real easy to see where perfection is. You shoot a hole in one, you're perfect. Now, I love watching professional golf. In fact, I feel bad about what I feel good about when I watch them. I I like to watch them do really bad because then I feel good about myself. I'm thinking, these guys are professionals, they get paid millions of dollars, they practice all the time, and here they are, they shank it just like me, they miss putts just like me. Now, obviously, maybe on a little bit different scale, uh, but I'm reminded that you still can't be perfect, no matter how good you are at anything, you still can't be perfect. And you can practice and practice and play and play, but but even we know that the pros will never be good enough. They'll never be perfect. And this is how sometimes we live our Christian life. We, we know what perfection is. We kind of have this idea of what we should do, what we should look like. And, and we strive and strive and strive and work and work and work. And we can never attain it. And the, the writer of Hebrews is reminding the people that he's writing to, the Jewish community of Christians, that there is one who is perfect, Jesus Christ, who made the way. Because they were striving as Jews to be perfect through the law. If they could just follow the rules and get it right, then they could somehow attain perfection. And he's reminding them that Jesus is greater because he alone is perfect. Did you know the average score in golf is 275 for for championship gameplay? They play 72 rounds. No, 72 holes. How many rounds is that? Divide by 18. There you go. Good job. I'm going to take your word for it. 
Average score, 275. Jesus would shoot a 72 because he's perfect. This is, this is what we strive for. But if you look at the average score of even a professional golfer in, in four rounds, they'll shoot 275. Hebrew writers telling us, hey, there is one who's perfect. Well, we pick up in Hebrews at the end of chapter 4, uh, the few verses before chapter 5. I actually think they should have started chapter 5 at the end of chapter 4 in verse 14, but I wasn't around when they wrote it, so my opinion doesn't matter. So at the end of chapter 4, starting in verse 14, he begins to communicate to the audience that he's writing to. Now, I'll remind you kind of what he, who he's writing to. The writer of Hebrews is communicating to Jewish Christians who are, at this point, thinking about walking away from their faith or are struggling in their faith for various reasons, including persecution from the Romans, uh, persecution from other Jews who are, who are giving them a hard time for converting to Christianity. And so he's sort of writing this book to correct, encourage, chastise maybe a little bit, to get them to understand what they're doing, what the, what the critical points of faith are. That's why I like the book of Hebrews. There are some core doctrines over the next few weeks, and including last week, that we can gather from the writer of Hebrews. He goes on, he says in chapter uh, 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. As you wander through the book of Hebrews, you'll notice these phrases, um, including the phrase high priest. What the writer is doing is he's connecting with his Jewish Christian audience. They have their roots in Judaism. That's how most of the audience would have grown up. And so he's, begun, he's trying to connect who Jesus is, the person of Jesus, with things that they know from the Old Testament, and the law, and the prophets. And so he, at this point, begins to connect Jesus as not just another high priest, but actually greater than the high priest because Jesus was perfect. Jesus is greater because he is perfect. Another translation of that would be complete. Jesus completed the law or is the completion of the law. Jesus is greater than any earthly priest. Now they would understand the role of the priest. His audience, the, the writer of Hebrews knows that his audience knows that the great high priest has a certain role. His greatest function is once a year is to go into the temple into the Holy of Holies, and on the Day of Atonement, make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But Jesus is greater than any high priest because a priest, and we'll see this in in the next few chapters, a priest has to first make a sacrifice for himself because he's human and sinful. He's got to actually make atonement for his own sins. And then he makes atonement for the sins of the people. Atonement means the covering of So he's covering for our sins, the payment of the penalty of our sins. And this was done traditionally by the high priest with a perfect, spotless lamb. But Jesus is greater than any high priest because, first of all, he doesn't have to offer any sacrifice for his own sins. He was 
sinless. This is what it, the scripture we just read says, he was tempted in every way, yet he was without sin. So he's greater in the role of high priest because he doesn't have to offer any sacrifice for his own sin. But he's, he's even greater because he doesn't have to offer a perfect spotless lamb in a traditional sense. He's offering himself as the perfect spotless lamb. He met all the righteous requirements of the law. He had no sin. He was the perfect lamb. This is what John the Baptist declares about Jesus when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who has the ability because of his position, because of his perfection, he has the ability to take away our sins. And the promise there is that we can approach the throne of grace because we have a high priest who understands Jesus isn't disconnected from us, but he sympathizes with our weakness. He's tempted in every way, but is without sin. We then have access to God. And I like that it says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. That prepositional phrase, with confidence, is very important because sometimes, maybe you're like me, when you approach God, it's sometimes with your tail between your legs and your just, just full of shame and condemnation. And yet here the writer says we can approach God with confidence. With humility, of course, but with confidence that he understands what we've been through. What we are going through. And we can have confidence that he will intervene with mercy and with grace when we need help. Jesus is greater through the suffering as well. As you continue into, into chapter 5, the first part of chapter 5 there kind of talks a little bit about the high priest. It's, it's worth reading that, but we won't do that today. But if you skip to verse 7 of chapter 5, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He kind of brings it back around to the thought of high priest. But I want to back up to the beginning of that portion of scripture. That Jesus is greater because of his suffering. He identifies with you and I through our physical sufferings our physical sufferings through temptation. It says that Jesus offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries. It's this picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where his true suffering began as he began to take on the sin of the world. He understood in that moment what he was doing and in his prayers to God the Father, said, Father, take this cup from me. He knew he was going to give his life on the cross and he says, Father, take this cup from me. But not my will. Yours be done. This is the reverent submission of Jesus, humbly obedient to God the Father. In suffering, he understands. And yet he submits to God the Father. And because of his obedience is greater than any high priest. In his humanness, he did not sin. In his humanness, as he's saying, God, don't make me go through this. But if it's your will, I will walk with you. I will walk into this. 
He was perfect in every way. He did not sin. You know, Jesus in suffering understands us. That's one reason he had to suffer. He was human and so he would suffer. He would suffer because of you and me. You know, sin causes suffering. I don't know if you understand that, but our sin causes suffering. It caused Jesus to suffer. It was my sin, it was your sin that Jesus suffered and died for. But let's not simply place our suffering uh, from our sin onto Jesus so many years ago. It still causes suffering today. And he'll, he'll address that in chapter 6 when he talks about the fact that as we continue to sin without any regard to what Christ did on the cross, we actually are crucifying him again. But your sin, even today, causes suffering in your own families. Some of you have seen the results of your sin and how it's affected your family, your friends, your children, people at your work. Our sin causes people to suffer. Grasp that. That sin, because of our selfish choices, we cause others to suffer, including Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus was greater because he willingly suffered the penalty and the consequences of our sin. So the writer of Hebrews, as we, if you were with us last week, the writer of Hebrews likes to sandwich warnings in, into his talks. Kind of as he's teaching, as he's writing, he, he inserts these warnings kind of into the middle. And you can, if you read through the first four chapters, you'll see two different warnings in there. And so here again, as he, as he has unfolded the, who Jesus is in, in line of high priest, and he breaks out this word Melchizedek, and we'll talk about him in, in just a second. He throws out this warning and an encouragement. In the end of chapter 5, verse 11, he says, We have much to say about this, Jesus as priest, and he, he'll come back to that. But he inserts this, he says, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. You can never hear that enough in your life. You are slow. Verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. You know, people always listen better when you insult them, apparently. <laughs> he says, you're slow. And he, he, listen, the writer is, understands the audience, is, are, these are not Christians who have just come to faith. He's not saying, hey, you don't need to know this stuff. He's saying, you already should know, understand, and embrace these teachings. These are elementary. And you're going back to the very things. You say, well, I don't know, is Jesus really son of God? I don't know. What about the resurrection from the dead? What about all these things? He said, you already know this stuff. This is baby food. You're supposed to be eating steak and potatoes. Come on. Stop expecting someone else to feed you and feed yourself. He says the mature Christian feeds themselves by constant use and training of righteousness according to the scripture and walking according to the spirit of God. He goes on in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ 
And he's not saying leave them as in, forget about them, they don't matter. He's saying let us move forward from them. Let us move forward from these teachings of Christ. Go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and in faith in God. And here he kind of lists the things that he's having to kind of instruct them over and over and over again. Instruction about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. We will move from that. But he's kind of reminding them about that. And here's the warning. He says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying Son of God, all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. He's saying, listen, if you fall away, if you walk away by either neglect or disobedience, rebellion, you just straight up say, I don't want to walk with Christ anymore, it is impossible to bring you back to repentance. That's that's pretty stern warning, don't you think? If If you grew up in church like me, you got used to hearing this phrase, Oh, they're backslid. They're backslidden. You ever hear that phrase? It's in reference to Christians who at one point had a relationship with Christ, but something over the years, either neglect or circumstance, they just kind of drift from Christ. As a kid, I was always concerned that I would commit what's called the unpardonable sin. I heard that phrase and I thought, oh my goodness, I've totally committed it. I just knew it. I was just confident that I was that bad. <laughs> I had committed the unpardonable sin. And I, I went to my youth pastor one time and I said, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. He said, well, what is that? I said, I don't know, but I'm sure I did it. <laughs> and he said, well, Jeremy, if, if you're worried about the fact that you committed the unpardonable sin, you probably haven't. He said, people who commit the unpardonable sin, whatever that is, they don't care. They don't think about it, and they're not worried about it. He said, so as long as you're worried about it, you're okay. I thought, oh, good. So at the point when I don't even think about it, then I should be worried. But I wouldn't think about it, so I won't be worried about it. That scares me. <laughs> so if you sit here today thinking, I don't know, I've sinned too much. God will never take me back. I've, I've committed too many sins, the same sin too many times. I've, it must be unpardonable. It's not. It's when we get to that point where we just don't even think about Jesus anymore. And he's saying, don't walk back into Judaism and forget about who Jesus Christ is and reject it. Don't turn your back and say, Jesus Christ isn't Lord. He's not Savior. He's not really the Messiah. Messiah. He's not really the Son of God. When you get to that point, that's when everybody else around you should be worried. So that's the warning to them. He says, look, verse, verse 7 of chapter 6, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed. They receive the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. And in the end, it will be burned. So it's this stern warning to grab a hold of faith, not as and sometimes in America, it's like, well, I attended church, you know, I'm good enough. And we sort of have this idea that, that it's all okay because I simply attended a group therapy session in a building labeled a church. 
well, this isn't group therapy. I'm sorry. Well, it is a little bit group therapy. You're all sinners, including me. I'm kind of the chief leading the band there. And the therapy is we need God. We're desperate for him. But he ends this section by saying, here's the encouragement. Even though we speak like this in verse 9, chapter 6, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. And church, I'm confident, well, in most of your cases, all of your cases, the things that accompany salvation. He says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and love you have shown him as you have helped this pe- his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. That, that's the encouragement. Don't give up. Keep going. And he goes on to say, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. He's saying, train yourself. Eat the meat of the word of God. Discover the promises in scripture and the power that comes by living with the Holy Spirit's power coming in and through you. And he, he says, he refers to these promises. And he goes on in verse 13 to explain the promises of the Old Testament given to him by Abraham, who received them from God. Now again, he's, con- he's talking to a Jewish uh, congregation, roots in the Jewish tradition. And so he knows when he's talking about Abraham, they kind of go, okay, I know what you're talking about. High priest, I get that. He mentioned this priest, Melchizedek. That's a fun word to say. Uh, you know, you feeling bad someday? Just say Melchizedek. That's just a great word. It's a fun word. But he's kind of name dropping here. He's, he's giving names of people that they look up to and respect and would understand. He says, look, the promise was given to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And there was this promise given by God. And you can be certain that if he gave the promise to Abraham, the promises he gives to you are also certain. In verse 16 of chapter 6, he says, Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. And because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, that's us, the heirs, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What a great scripture. The anchor for the soul. No matter what life throws at us, no matter what storms come our way, there's this anchor for our soul, this promise that has been given. Surely if God gave Abraham a promise and it came true, we can believe what God is saying to us. He says God did this by the two unchangeable things, his nature and his promises. God doesn't lie. If God lies, he's not a very good God, right? God's nature does not change. The Bible tells us he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He does not shift with the shift of our culture or even our own decisions, our own sinful way. God is not affected by that. And he keeps his promises. 
He says, those of us who have fled to take hold of the hope which is offered to us. We, we can hold on to that. And he, again, he's referring to things that they would understand. He's talking about the inner sanctuary, which is the temple. He says the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. The curtain was for the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would en- enter once a year to make a sacrifice. He's saying Jesus has the position as high priest to go in to the sanctuary behind the curtain and as the sacrifice himself, he is guaranteeing us this promise. God makes a promise to us, this oath that he refers to. He doesn't just give us his word like, I swear I'll do it. He says, I'm going to do it and I'm going to sign it in blood. I'm going to seal it with the blood of my own son and guarantee that what I'm offering you, access to the very throne room of God, will be true and available because I sent my son to accomplish the purpose for that. And we can trust the certainty of God's promises. We have this hope. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, he is greater. Now he mentions Melchizedek. I wish we had time to unfold who Melchizedek is. You'd have to read Genesis chapter 14 through about 16 to understand who he is. This is a person Abraham meets out in the middle of the desert. And Abraham meets this, he's a king and a priest. The very first king and priest. And this is before the priestly line of the Levites through Jacob is, has come into existence. So Abraham meets Melchizedek who is a king and priest. And this is a type or a shadow of who Jesus would be. And he's referring to Melchizedek because there's no record of Melchizedek's birth or his death. And so when he talks about being a priest in the line of Melchizedek forever, this is sort of the picture he's painting. And he's name dropping because the people go, oh yeah, yeah, I know that story. My grandparents or my mom and dad told me that story. I know who Melchizedek is. We may not, but chapter 7 begins to break that out for you, and you can, you can read that on your own time. But Jesus is the greatest high priest because he met the righteous requirements of the law, but he didn't do it in the traditional sense by offering a lamb. He offered himself. And this is why Jesus is greater, is because of his sacrifice. He met the re- righteous requirements of the law, Because if he didn't, there would still be a need for a high priest on the earthly basis. Read verse 11 with me in chapter 7. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still a need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek? Because perfection would never be attained through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. The law was imperfect Because it simply revealed to us as humans how desperately we need God. That even if we had a written law, we would still disobey. And so Jesus came. And he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He went behind the curtain on our behalf. God sealed it with an oath. Verse 16 then goes on to say, There's one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to ancestry, based on the law, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. That's just a cool phrase. 
based on the power of an indestructible life. Jesus comes and is the great high priest because of his great sacrifice. Because even though he dies, he comes back to life. Indestructible. Greatest superhero who ever lived. It's right there. Verse 16. Goes on, the writer goes on to say in verse 18, the former regulation... The law is set aside because it was weak. It was useless for the law made nothing perfect. It just simply revealed our imperfection. A a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. We are able to draw near to God because of what Jesus Christ did. He goes on to say, verse 22, because of this oath, this promise, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. God put a down payment on it. He guaranteed that the promise is true. He sealed it. And we'll talk next week about the better covenant, but he goes on in verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely or forever, those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Understand what Jesus did for you and me. He made the greatest sacrifice. He becomes a priest forever. There's no more need for the priesthood or the sacrificial system. And the writer here says, listen, he's able to save completely, thoroughly, forever, those who come to God through him. This is, there, there's a $20 theological word at play here called sanctification. The moment you step into relationship with Christ, you are sanctified. You are washed clean. You are made new. But there's this ongoing sanctification to perfection. You only attain perfection upon death. So if you're praying for perfection... Perfection comes when you die, so be careful about that prayer. God is perfecting us into the image of his son, Jesus, the scripture says. And that's an ongoing process. So the very thing you're trying to get out of in your life, maybe the very thing God is working for your good to perfect you, to show his glory through you and in you. So don't run from it. Run to God in it and discover the work that he's going to do through that the purposes he has for that. He's able to save completely based upon our need because verse 26, such a high priest, Jesus, meets our need because we need one who is holy and blameless and set apart from sinners and pure and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is different than any other God, any other religion out there because God came to us and made a way for us to come back to him. Jesus is unique There is no other religion that claims that their deity came to them and did all the work for them. That's the difference, that Jesus is greater. And this is the once for all sacrifice. Verse 27, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself for the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath, the promise which came after the law, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is greater because he's perfect. 
because he's made the way for you and me. And because he's done that, because he goes behind the curtain and made the sacrifice, he did all the work. Was it verse 25 says, now he sits at the right hand of the father and intercedes for us. God and Jesus, they talk about us. They're talking about you. I hope it's good. But they're whispering about you. They're talking about you. This is what intercession is. You go, when we intercede, if you hear Christians say, well, I'm, in, I'm interceding, I'm an intercessor. It means you're going to God on behalf of another. Well, Jesus intercedes for you and for me. This is the role that he plays as our high priest. He's going to God on our behalf. And because he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law through his own sacrifice, God listens. God listens. And we can go boldly into the throne room of God with Jesus at our side and make our requests known to God. This is what the scripture tells us. I want the band to come as we end our time together in worship through song. The Hebrew writer says there's a better hope that's introduced here. There's a better hope at play. If, if you think you're, you're good enough, if you think you can shoot a perfect 72, every hole in one, Good luck. But Jesus has already done it. He already took care of it. Signed, sealed, delivered. Your role, the only work left to do is for us to step into that and partner with what God is already doing. This morning, our prayer partners are to our right and to our left. We have our students up here to pray with you as well. I saw some looks for service. You're kind of young. <laughs> First service, I saw people like, oh, there's teenagers up there. You know what? Our teenagers know how to pray because we teach them how to pray. <laughs> Paul writes to Timothy. He says, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. But set, for the, set an example for the believers in life and in faith and in love. So that's what we're going to do. Our, our students pray as well. This morning, I don't know where you are with Christ, but some of you feel like you're gonna, you just need to keep striving and working harder. And I told you last week, I'm going to remind you again, God doesn't want a better version of you. you. You can't produce that. God wants to make you new. In the book of Corinthians, it says that you become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Why is that possible? Because of what Jesus did. Because he is the high priest who fulfills all the duties and roles as the priest and the role of sacrifice. He took that upon himself. So the way has been made. You and I can step into that and have access to the very throne room of God. You know, we tried to teach our kids in VBS this week. That God is, is not distant from us. He's not disassociated as, as sometimes we feel. Oh yeah, God's out there somewhere in, out, out in outer space. No, he's very real and he's very personable. He's very personal because of who Jesus is, who he was and what he did. God is very personal. He's not distant from you. 
He's only as far from you as you want him to be. So this morning, I guess the question is, where are you at? Do you need to revisit the elementary teachings? If so, let's do that. But I think for us, church, there are many of you who, who want to be spoon-fed, and yet the scripture is clear. Read me. Read me. That's like the book talking to you. Never mind. Step into that. Step into the maturity of Christ. Those of you who are at the beginning of your walk with Christ, you know what? We're going to walk with you. We're going to help you attain that maturity. We're going to teach you those elementary teachings because they're very important. But let's move on to that because you know what moving on means? It means we reach the community of Columbia. We reach those who are lost and dying and have no hope. They have no anchor for the soul that you and I have. This morning, would you stand with me as we worship? Would you surrender that to Christ this morning, whatever it is, wherever, wherever you're at? Let's take this moment to worship and to reflect and to ask God what he's wanting from us and where we need to respond.